Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology Around. My guest today is my very good friend, Joshua Ryan Butler. He's been a pastor for a couple decades, is the author of several books, including his uh, about-to-be-released, The Party Crasher, How Jesus Disrupts Politics as Usual and Redeems Our par- Partisan Divide, which is the topic of our conversation. Uh, I just love how not only thoughtful and well-read Josh is, but he's also extremely um, accessible in how he communicates what could otherwise be very hard to understand truths. Uh, He's also the author of uh, Beautiful Union, Skeletons in God's Closet, and The Pursuing God. He and his wife, Holly, live with their three children in Portland, Oregon. And I don't know how many times Josh is on the podcast, but this is probably at least the third or fourth time he's been on. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only, my very good friend, Josh Ryan Butler. Josh Butler, what is going on, man? Hey, Preston. How you doing, man? It's good to see you. We are releasing books on politics on the same day. The same day. <laughs> totally. Not even coordinated. I don't know. Maybe divinely coordinated or That's something. That's so awesome. Which, which, by the way, I love your book, man. It's so good. I'm so stoked. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited. And, and vice versa, man. So and uh, what what is it about March 5th? Is there is there something with that day that a publisher, or is it just really just, it could have been March 6th, March 7th, or is there something about that? I don't know. I don't, I actually don't know, man. Yeah, I don't know. That was the date that the publisher suggested, uh, but I actually don't okay. know if there was, I, I'm sure there was a logic behind it. Uh, it might've had to do with when different things were getting released by, by the publisher as well, but yeah. Uh, that's yeah. true. Okay. I, I know there was knowing, hey, we're going into the uh, election season and everything there and wanting to, you know, put resources out there with <laughs> enough time to be a, a resource for folks. There's a lot of books coming out on Christians and politics. Uh, uh, N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd are coming out with one. I know um, Patrick Miller is coming out with one. There's already been a couple I've seen come out. So, yeah, ho- hopefully uh, we'll, yeah. Uh, the, the conversation. Well, I, yeah, it's such an important conversation. I'm glad there's multiple stuff coming out. But we talked offline how... Our, our books perfectly complement each other, really, because I spend most of my energy on kind of like exegesis, biblical theology. You take, you, you would very much, your, your book kind of agrees with, I would say a lot of at least what I'm saying, but now you take a boots on the ground and this wasn't planned. It's not like we coordinated this, but you're, you're saying, okay, what does living out this kind of distinctly Christian political identity look like in, in the, in, in the, in the pews, in society? How do we do this? So anyway, I'm excited about your book, bro. It's really, really good. I love yours. I feel like yours is like first century, like deep biblical theology. What you know, getting into the imagination and the the, the theological power of what was happening in the first century with some application for today. And then, yeah, I feel like mine heavies up on like okay, twenty first century boots on the ground, as you said, kind of the pastor in me going, how do we shepherd people in kind of the nitty gritty dynamics of living well together as the people of God in this fragmented, fractured, polarized culture. How did you get into this topic? And I'll just say this topic as, let's just call it political theology. Um, is this something you've always been interested in or is this more of a recent thing? Well, with with this book in particular, it was kind of getting my tail kicked during the last few elections. <laughs> I did as a pastor and just seeing <laughs> the tensions of uh, church, you know, navigating, leading a, in in a church during the polarization all. But um Deeper, bigger picture, yeah. You know, back in seminary, someone turned me on to well, uh, political theology. Someone turned me on to um, Oliver O'Donovan was a big one. I, I, I remember reading Augustine's City of God, 
and just the political theology that was implicit there just kind of rocking my world. And then getting turned on to Oliver O'Donovan, kind of a political theologian out at Oxford and finding his stuff so compelling and powerful. I kind of went through my Howard Voss Yoder phase of, of reading those guys uh, for a bit. <laughs> um, William Kavanaugh was a huge influence. And um, and I, I don't know, then, then it just kind of spread out and, and have loved as kind of a side hobby reading and reflecting on political theology. Uh, and part of that, too, even just practically as a pastor. So um, was pastoring in, here in Portland for my first 15 years of ministry and uh, an environment where we were working with the mayor and civic leadership and trying to really cultivate good relationships with the city and kind of going, how do you do that? You're in kind of a cultural climate that is a bit hostile to the church and you're trying to build constructive bridges. And yet, how do you know where the boundaries and lines are for maintaining the integrity of your witness as the church community in relationship with the government and the state and all. And then working in Vietnam and Cambodia simultaneously, I was mm. like our outreach pastor. So part of my role was our global partnerships. And so working a lot in Vietnam with uh, persecuted church leaders, you know, leaders in the underground church, and then some leaders with the state sanctioned church, you know, and, and learning from how they were grappling with what is our relationship as the church look like mm. with government in a context of real explicit like persecution and all. Mm. And so the, that was some of the background, I think, pastorally, theologically on those issues. But then in the last uh, few elections, you know, particularly 2016 and 2020, just seeing churches I love get hammered by the, the division in our culture. So, you know, m one story I share in the book and the opening is uh, a church that we're really close friends with. It was a congregation in the network I was a part of, and um, they had half the church left, you know, in 2020. So they had a so 1500 out of 3000 people like left and left angry. It was in the midst of um, with pandemic and political conversations. The lead pastor had put out a video on Instagram that seemed really tame, you know, but uh a group of eight leaders kind of left the church and left angry reading it really through the grid of kind of this partisan ideology that they were enamored with and began uh, basically seeking to take down the church. You know, like they started coffee shop conversations with people they knew. They started scouring every pastor across all 10 congregations in our network, scouring every pastor's social media feeds, watching every pastor's sermon, checking our spouse's social media feeds, looking for ammo to take down the church. There were, videos that started circulating saying that the lead pastor of this particular church was uh, under the influence of Satan and was leading God's people astray. And it was just wild. And it was all like gossip and slander. Like there was no truth to it. And it worked like half the congregation left and left angry and, and, uh, and split. And so seeing that, and as a congregation that we loved and were in strong relationship with and just going, it broke my heart and knowing so many friends and leaders nationally who are experiencing the same thing. I just had a conversation this week with a pastor here in Portland who uh, had the exact same experience here at their congregation here in Portland. Uh, the congregation split in half over a political division. Yeah, so I'd say that's the backdrop. And in... In, in our congregation, you know, I, I was really blessed with, uh, I was leading together with a good friend of mine, Jim Mullins, co-leading together. And he had so much brilliance and wisdom because we were brainstorming together back in 2019 going, how do we 
trying to equip our people in 2020 for the election that's coming. And we didn't do everything perfectly, but there were some things that I think really helped us weather the storm and to keep united at the table, even with our different political leanings that everyone in the congregation and even us as leaders had. Uh, so a lot of the book was born out of that, of going, man, in case there's some stuff here, <laughs> we'd love to resource and try and help equip uh, the church with hmm. lessons learned on navigating the political division of our moment. Oh. I want to come back to maybe towards the end of our conversation, kind of like what does political discipleship look like, especially now another election year, you know? Um, Cause yeah, I, I, I mean, that's tragic. The, the first story you told about that, that's just on a theological level. That's just insane. What, what was the angle? Can you tell us like, and we don't, I don't know how many details are completely relevant, but I mean, was it, as you're describing it, my, my, where my mind went in my assumptions was, it was this kind of suspicion that the church was going progressive. They probably use the term woke. I don't like that term, but, um, you know, and so they're kind of sniffing out, you know, anything that could look like social justice, CRT, BLM, you know, kind of all these things. Is that, was that, am I off on that? Or yes. What was that? Yep. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, totally. That, that was, uh, <laughs> so I go into detail. Start talking about in, justice in after, or racism uh, or, yeah. Yes, totally. So one of the chapters in the book, I go into a lot more detail on the whole story and, and whatnot. But what was crazy was, um, dude, you saw so many people like uh, reading into things that were not being said. You know, <laughs> so for example, um, I, I share one story where, dude, we had this visitor at the church who was going like, "Why do you guys have these All Lives Matter posters all over your church?" And we were like what are you talking about All Lives Matter posters? You guys got these All Lives Matter posters plastered all over the church. And we're like, did we get graffiti or, you know, like this, what's happening? Can you show us these posters? So he goes over and shows us. And what these posters are, are, um, dude, for over 10 years, the vision of the church is, you know, all of life is all for Jesus. <laughs> like all of life is all for Jesus. And so he was seeing all of life is all for Jesus and hearing that it's like, you guys, are, all lives matter and all angry, you know? And it was like, dude, hearing stuff we weren't saying. So he was coming, you know, that, that one, uh, more from, uh, the, the left side of the spectrum, but then you had other people from the right, you know, like where we had one, uh, pastor who gave this message at a, at, at a friend's church in our network. And he was talking about progressive sanctification, you know, and this idea in Christian theology that over time, God doesn't, sanctify you overnight. It's a gradual process over time. It happens progressively over time. And afterwards, this lady came up to him so angry and was just like, why are you saying that if I'm becoming sanctified, I'm going to become more progressive? <laughs> and he was like, dude, what in the world are you talking about? And then if that wasn't enough. He had two emails that week from people in the congregation angry that he was you know, saying, you're going to become more progressive as you get sanctified. Oh, so that wasn't just and a one-off. There's a Wow. It wasn't just a one-off thing, dude. And so what's crazy is like how much I think people get into this ideological bent and this filter, and then they're hearing everything through that filter and it mm -hmm. can start distorting yeah. like what they're actually hearing, you know? Um, Josh, so I mean, you've been in ministry long. for, a, you've been in ministry for a long time and you're saying this is, you've seen that this kind of thing happen way more recently than ever before. Where's that coming? Like, could you unearth some of that for us is it because is it just trump and trumpism 2016 2020 is it so increased social media independent news outlets bias what is it like what what are how do those lenses get so thick where we will read into stuff like crazy you know 
Yeah, well, the angle I take in the book is looking at it as religious conversion. You know, like if you were to wake up tomorrow and a third of your church had converted to another religion, let's say some had become Buddhist, some had become Hindu, one dude's now Zoroastrian or whatever, you know, and, and you're going like, dude, what what is going on? But there's still a part of your church. They don't leave and they're they're kind of, you know, sharing their newfound faith with friends at the church over coffee and whatever else. And um, but then as soon as you start confronting or unwilling to go along with it, they break fellowship, they leave the church and all. And the reality is I, I would argue or suggest like that's actually happened. The problem is that we don't think of them as religions because we're not mm. talking here about like the old school world religions, but more of the new school political religions, you know, um, and that politics today has taken on like a religious type of character. And so uh, in the one of the things that try and map out in the first uh, chapter of the book and section of the book really is looking at um, some of the political ideologies today that people are converting to in droves as like religious ideologies, which historically, you know, we tend to think, oh, religion, politics, two very separate things. But the root of the term religion historically had to do with uh, like the sense of devotion, something that you were devoted to with like social bonds and expectations that were bound up related to that. And I'd argue there's no more zeal or devotion that many people are showing today than to their particular political yeah. tribe and, and allegiance. And um, that that allegiance has taken on kind of an ultimate sense that is now competing with people's devotion to Christ. That was one of my favorite parts of the book so far. So I told you offline, um, I, I didn't finish the book. I was pretty far, for, uh, far along in the book. And I left it on the airplane, so I didn't get to finish it. So I, I, you need to send me a a, a, a post release copy because I, yes. I had a pre release. But um, that was one of my favorite parts because you you spent a lot of time just because I've heard people say that that you know politics has a religious quality, but you spent a good deal of time in a real accessible way um, unpacking why that's true. What why, why we can actually say that political allegiance can very easily and, and often does take on a religious quality. Um, if you just take the basic sense of religion as devotion to something, and even the, even things like uh, liturgy and authority and rhythms and practice, like all the things that go into the rhythm of a religious life, they can be easily mapped onto um, one's devotion to a political party. Not that um, any sort of voting a certain direction will necessarily mean you are adopting a alternative religion um but it often is the case isn't it i mean because that's the question i often get because i talk about political idolatry not giving your allegiance to a political party and people are like what so you don't you don't think i could vote for whatever they're like you don't and, and they i'm like well i'm not necessarily saying that i'm just saying that like it's like a vacuum it's sucking you into the vortex of Wanting your, it doesn't just want your vote. It doesn't just want you to say, "Oh, I kind of resonate with these values over here more than these," or "I think this leader might be better than this." It doesn't want to stop there. It wants your heart. It wants your full devotion. It wants your wallet. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What it, are the, yeah. 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 Totally. I mean, I think the reality is people are spending billions of dollars to turn your allegiance in these directions. You know, and there are liturgical rhythms and practices in American life now. One of those I talk about in a later chapter, but how America has a new national liturgy, which is the crisis of the week, you know, and the newest thing that everyone needs to figure out if they're going to respond to or how. Mm. And so 
how do we navigate that? You know, that's the whole thing. But there, there is a reality that like both in terms of the power and presence and pressure of these ideologies, the liturgical rhythms that we are now in as a nation that are shaping and forming us in these ways. Um, and I think it's totally great. You know, I argue that the goal, as I, I put it, in the book, it's not to be apolitical or centrist or anything like that. We need our different political leanings in the body of Christ. And so I try and map out what I see some of those leanings being today and how we need your lean, but the call is to bring your lean, but to submit your bow, right? Like to bring your lean to the table, the body of Christ, but to submit your bow. And a lean is having a different perspective, some different uh, insights from your background, your experience, your political leanings and all. The bow is having a different allegiance, like ultimately being beholden to some of these ideological events that don't have Christ as their ultimate authority. I remember working through that section and I, I agree with all of that. Leans can be good. Leans can be really good. Um, but, but when they lead to bows, that's when it gets problematic that the lean saying, you know, here's, you know, the values of this political party. There's several values here that I resonate with. Maybe more this political party has several things that I just don't resonate. I'm not completely on one side or the other, but I kind of lean this, maybe this direction, I guess. Well, it's kind of what you said earlier though. Like there's so much baked into the whole system that is trying so hard to turn your lean into a bow. Can we actually lean and not end up bowing is, I guess, my question. Well, I mean, maybe, yeah, to, maybe you can, to get, but yeah. is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe to get a little more concrete, you know, so in, in chapter one, I talk about what I call the four political religions of trying to map out mm-hmm. what leaning yeah, and bowing might look like with each of these, right? So, uh, and these are, uh, so if you can imagine for those who are listening, like four quadrants, right? So we tend to think of left-right, like on a left-right axis, um, and which is true, but what we often miss is there's also a top-down axis, which uh, described from modernity at the top down to post-modernity at the bottom. And so one of the things I try and do in chapter one is show how I believe the shift from modernity to post-modernity has actually kind of split the traditional political parties and the traditional spectrum and so, and led to these four political religions. So if you think upper left, this is sort of the modern left quadrant would be what I call the religion of progress. And this is stuff my friend Jim and I kind of brainstormed and used in in 2020. So upper left would be religion of progress, whose creed is we can change the world. And so this is like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, like uh, iPhone, Silicon Valley, like we can change the world. The worship leader is Bono, you know, on the global stage, like the apologists are Steve Pinker and Sam Harris, look how great civilization has brought us. But there's a sense of like, we can use uh, institutions, technology, um, reason, science, all these things to transform and change the world for the better. Now, if we go upper right quadrant, so the modern right, I call this the religion of responsibility. And here, this is like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And so this is, uh, I think, classic, like Ronald Reagan, conservatism, historically, like Newt Gingrich and uh, Milton Friedman economics, you know, and there's a sense of um, everyone needs to take responsibility for themselves, for their family, for their job. If we all just took personal responsibility, then we could change the world for the better. Things would be much better. Uh, And today, I'd say the baton has been passed to maybe leaders like Jordan Peterson, you know, uh, if you want to change the world, start by making your bed, take responsibility for yourself, um, that kind of thing. You think of Jocko Willink and kind of the extreme ownership sort of crowd, uh, folks like David Coggins and, and, and that crowd. And so anyways, there you got kind of the, what I grew up thinking, like left and right, right? Like religion of progress and religion of responsibility. And, and real quick, you're, you're, yeah. because those are both in the upper quad 
upper level, there's a similarity that they share, even though, I mean, it's almost like those are kind of like your classical, classical liberals and classical Republicans, right? I mean, there's a, a a big difference between AOC and Bill Maher, right? Even though they would both be on the left, so to speak, they're going to clash just as much as they're going to probably clash more than they got, than they're going to agree. I don't know why those two examples came, you know, but, but it's a good, no, totally. well, I think you, you even, I don't know if you mentioned Bill Maher, but you mentioned AOC is, well, and you'll get to that quadrant, but like I see, I see some enlightenment, rational kind of reasoning behind both of those camps, even though they're on different sides politically. I think that's really helpful to understand. Exactly. Cause you know, you, as you mentioned, AI, one example that just comes to mind off the cuff right now, but is um, the Harper's letter back in the day. And you saw folks like Noam Chomsky and Salman Rushdie mm. and, you know, a lot of like historic left leaning upper left figures. Yeah. And some of the biggest heat and pushback they got was from the postmodern left, like not from the right, mm. you know, but from actually right. uh, left wing figures. And, um, and we can get to this in a minute, but it's also, I think interesting when we think of some of the I don't know if they're still calling them this, but the intellectual dark web, IDW, you know, or like, oh, yeah. you, like Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro or, uh, or um, Sam Harris or, you know, these folks that lean in a lot of different directions, right and left. But what they share in common is that they're high center and they're very modern, like very, they're very uh, pro, pro, pro free speech too. Let's debate it out. Let's ha- yes, hash let's it, out. it out. They're both against yeah. kind of cancel culture. Uh, exactly well, like they're both very in modern theory, although kind of reacting against the postmodern right. yeah like yeah. so so then you got the shift from modern to postmodern and what uh what does that mean well yeah, i think all the philosophy majors are going to slap me right now for how simplistic i'm going to be you know but uh, i think if we think of modernity as like the scientist in the lab coat trying to dissect and organize and understand the observable world out there and we think of postmodernity as the artist painting a picture of themselves as the artist. Like uh, there is this sense of um, institutions, science, reason, the, these sort of things have let us down. They've given us world wars, nuclear weapons, eugenics, like all these things done by institutions in the name of science and reason. And now with postmodernity, there's a high you know, distrust on any bigger story, any bigger narrative, uh, distrust in these these. Um, those things. And so now there's a high emphasis on other things. So in the lower left, I refer to this as the religion of identity, which is live your truth. You know, the creed there would be live your truth where now there's a sense we still want progress. We still want change, but we no longer trust necessarily institutions and science and authority and reason those things to get us there. And so now the locus of change is now gone from the external to the internal to uh, look within yourself, live your truest self, your authentic desires, a high emphasis on self-expression. And here we can think of like the urban core and um, the revolutions around gender and race and things of that nature, you know, uh, a high emphasis on identity, on personal identity and who you are. I think of things like personality tests today, you know, like how they skyrocket in popularity, understand yourself and know the true you. Uh, think of the Disney script, you know, like all the I don't know, all all the narratives are around finding and becoming your most authentic true self, right? Um, And then if we go to the lower right, I would call this the uh, religion of security, where now there is this sense of uh, where the motto or creed here, the religion of security, is good fences make good neighbors. And here there's a sense of like, dude, the world is a dangerous place. We need boundaries and borders and rules of conduct to help insiders know how, how to live together and all. And um, the the high priest of, uh, you know, this this religion, well, I, I think here 
talk about the distrust in institutions and all, right? And here there's high rhetoric around like, dude, the deep state is out to take away your rights. Like big pharma is pushing its pills and its vaccines on you. Um, the fake media is pushing its narratives on you. And so there's a high degree on loyalty. Like we need to stick together and band together against these things so they don't destroy us. And so there's still a, a kind of responsibility, but it's not to these bigger objective moral goods out there. It's kind of to deep bonds of loyalty with your in-group, your smaller crowd and tribe to head together. And so Real to your quick, point, how you do we... Oh, three, three names came up, Alex Jones, Trump, and Christian nationalists in the capital C and, you know... Uh, would all three of those belong in that final quadrant? Because I, I lo a lot of kind of fear and just like that deep state stuff. Yeah, well, you mentioned, yeah, like, you know, with I, I'd say the high priest of this religion would be Donald Trump, you know, and you think of his most okay. viral campaign slogans. So things like build the wall uh, that spoke to security in a context of borders and immigration issues. You think of uh, drain the swamp that spoke to this deep suspicion mm -hmm. of elites and institutions, again, kind of the postmodern distrust of authority and institution. I think of Make America Great Again, kind of this patriotic nationalism in the face of globalization. And actually, as one friend pointed out to me, you know, he kind of grew up in 90s hip hop culture. And as we were, uh, you know, processing through this, he's like, man, it actually feels like, you know, the religion of security maybe thrives in uh, the Midwest, kind of the heartland, but it also thrives in historically in kind of hip hop culture. You know, like you think of gangs, for example, and there's this high emphasis on loyalty, like the streets are dangerous, the police are out to get you, society doesn't understand you, like we need to stick together, our safety's at stake, and the loyalty is not so much to a sacred code of contact out, out there, but rather to those of us in here, the insiders. You've got patriotic signs of identification, like gang colors and tattoos. Uh, the biggest sin is being a snark or a niche or a traitor. Um, so... I'll, I'll have to say though that uh, real yeah, quick, the worship point. leader, the worship leader is uh, <laughs> the rich man, mm. North Richmond guy. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, yeah. So right? the worship leader, it, yeah. So the worship it, leader it, in it, the religion of security is the North of Richmond guy, and the worship yeah, leader yeah. in the religion of identity would be like uh, Lady Gaga and Little Nas X. You know, like constantly <laughs> performative self reinvention. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because the people that the people in the upper quadrant tried to adopt that guy as their worship leader, and he kind of gave their finger to him. Says, "I'm not, I'm not." Just because they're both on the right, he's like, "No, we're in different quadrants." This is Josh. Yes. That, I mean, that yeah. The more I think about it, because I remember reading that chapter and constantly thinking of, "Okay, what about this person? What about this person?" And, and you're trying. Yeah, just to be clear, I didn't see you trying to develop these airtight categories. Like, these are these are mm -hmm. you know the, the lines are fuzzy and you know these are kind of generalized heuristic kind of grids but it was really helpful to understand how people on the same political side can often kind of have come at the same questions from a very different angle anyway yeah totally man um, yeah well and to your question yeah and definitely i i acknowledge in in, in this chapter I'm, I'm painting with broad brush strokes you know so this is uh you know speaking generally. Um, but I do think there's, you know, there's interesting, there was a fascinating cover story in the Atlantic a while back on like the four Americas. And he was essentially mm. charting out these same four categories. That. And we've been preaching about this at Redemption or walking through this stuff and uh, at, at, at our church. And what struck me was like, oh my gosh, he called them, he used different language for them. He called the, uh, there was um, free America, just America, smart America, and real America. And so smart America was like the religion of progress, Silicon Valley and so on. Um, 
free America was like the one of responsibility, upper right. A just America was religion of identity, lower lower left. And um, and real America was the religion of security. And so he was mapping these on sociologically in kind of this really powerful article. And what struck me, I was reading it and going like, oh my gosh, he stole those categories from Jim, my friend who <laughs> we, we, we kind of developed this stuff together. And I'm sure he didn't actually listen to our sermons or anything like that, you know, so I'm joking. But, but he was describing it sociologically, these four categories. But what I liked about uh, Jim's terminology and the categories we used is it actually helps us to give some uh, theological categories, kind of like value, uh, values that we can engage. And so what I mean by that is... Um, it relates to your question of how can we lean without bowing. I think it's recognizing yeah. that oh, yeah. each of these four values are actually God-given values, right? Like we see in the Garden of Eden, we see progress, we see responsibility, we see identity, and we see security. And so we see progress. There's a call to cultivate the garden. It starts in a garden and the story ends in a city, you know, the cultural mandate. We see um responsibility that Adam and Eve are giving responsibility for their, their, their family and their job, their work and the, the things, the mandate that they're given. We see themes like the image of God and their identity as male and female and the nations that are going to come from them uh, are emphasized in Genesis. We see security that's called to protect the garden and, uh, and God as ultimately a, a protector and defender. And so these are basically, these are biblical themes when they become ultimate and kind of uprooted mm. from God's creational design, like they become distorted and idolatrous and, and can actually unleash havoc and destruction. And so I think, I think we're seeing that today in how many people are treating these ideologies and all. And so I think part of leaning, bringing your lean is recognizing Hey, there's insight I have in my quad, whatever quadrant I lean towards, there's insight that I, I have that is good for the body of Christ to have that perspective present. But if I kind of disconnect from the broader body of Christ and go all in on this political religion, it can wreak destruction in my own life and our political religion can wreak havoc in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because when you were when you even when you're describing the different quadrants, people could think that you're like critiquing them, but it's just purely descriptive. You're not, you know. Um, so if people are like, wait a minute, like you know, like when I heard you say, you know, deep state, I'm like, well, I'm totally. Hey, hey, man, get a little yeah. closer. You know, <laughs> I think there's a deep state and it's totally corrupt and totally. You know, well, and, I'm not, Alex, but I'm not Alex Jones. You know, like yeah. <laughs> when, when he totally. talks about the deep state, I'm like, no, 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 you're not. But <laughs> uh, but you're, you're 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 saying like there there's pros and cons and neutrals you know there's things in all of those that um are on a spectrum of good neutral bad whatever it's just when they become kind of t- tribalized and when your allegiance when you, yeah when when they become religious right um then because even people you know I, I listen to some secular commentators that also talk about the deep state and i might be like oh yeah yeah but then they but then they start to get a little tribalistic and they use this we us, them, kind of us who are opposed to deep state, them who, you know, it's like, ah, I can see myself getting sucked into that tribe. I already have a tribe. I already have yeah. a tribe. Uh, I joined it 2000 years ago, long before I even knew it, you know, like, <laughs> yes, um, yes, but my, my reform leaning is coming out Re- really quick on that though, dude. I do think uh, the best way to tell which quadrant you lean towards is which one you get most defensive of, <laughs> you know, like, dude, like the one that you find yourself defending on, ah! uh, but, but like you're saying, yeah, the goal is just to be descriptive at that. So you're just trying to map out because I found it's helpful. I think so many of us are going, 
like what the heck just happened like the last 48 years or you know like what in the world like feels like something uh something hit that's hard to make sense of for many of us and so i found taking some time to try and map the lay of the land helpful for just giving some clarity uh, for me it's been helpful and i think for many that I know, and even our church to kind of go, oh, I can see where people lean that are, are, are maybe coming from a different place than I am that actually has some value. Hey, friends, want to let you know that I have a book coming out in March of 2024. It's called Exiles, The Church in the Shadow of Empire. If you've been listening to me for more than like five seconds, you've probably heard me use the phrase uh, exile or, you know, that we are exiles living in Babylon. And, you know, that's something I've said for many years. And so this book is kind of the culmination of my thinking through the question, what is a biblical theology of a Christian political identity. So this book uh, does just that. It looks at how the people of God throughout scripture navigated the relationship with the various nations and empires that they were living under uh, in order to cultivate a framework for how Christians today should view their relationship with whatever uh, state or empire that they are living under. So I invite you to check it out. It's available for pre-order now. Again, the name is Exiles, the Church in the Shadow of Empire. Check it out. I'm only mildly pushing because I don't necessarily disagree, but I, this idea, you know, can your lean be just a lean and not a bow? Um, But again, it just goes back to the point that there are forces at work. And I'm not even talking spiritually. Well, I would include that for sure. Um, There is a, a dragon behind the beast <laughs> that is doing things to pull your allegiance away from the kingdom of God like that, you know, theologically, that's not hard to justify, but even just on a more practical level, um, even if we don't overly spiritualize things, like I just constantly think of things like social media algorithms, the billion dollar marketing industry that's designed to suck you into a tribe. Um, so you spend more money and you get more fearful and you keep clicking and clicking and you click on this YouTube video and it says, oh, you like Ben Shapiro destroying this, you know, lib? Oh, here's 10 more. And, and you know, and, and you get sucked into this, this echo chamber, really. And the whole system is kind of, when I say system, I think people could, you know, just, yeah, between media, social media, uh, forces at work the high priests of all these different, you know, like, like they're, they're, they don't just want your bow, your lean, they want your bow. And there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that is trying to bend your lean into a, at the very least. And I hear you, I hear you saying at least this, we should be very vigilant and aware of that at the very least. But then even that, like, I don't know, like, um, I find myself, you know, I'll, I'll listen to, I'll listen to certain news outlets and I, and I go across the board. I'll listen to all kinds, but I'll listen to like even this 10 minutes of like this tribe. And all of a sudden I could totally see within seconds how somebody could be so tribal. You listen to like Ben Shapiro for like 10 minutes or something, or you listen to whatever the pod save America guys on the other side, wherever the you know opposite is or, or Rachel Maddow or, you know, like you can get easily sucked into this kind of, tr- this, this, this bow really, and think that the other side is the enemy and everybody else is stupid. And, you know, I I just don't, I don't don't know. It's hard. It's a, I I am a little skeptical, suspicious about 
being able to lean and not bow. And by, and, and by lean, not maybe, or maybe, maybe this is where we, where I totally like, I lean towards maybe certain values that happen to intersect at certain points across political parties, but they're dealing just with a completely different playing field than I am. When I, when I talk about immigration, when I talk about like, they're coming at it from this, this, this nation state perspective, I'm coming at immigration from, I'm a member I'm 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 a stranger sojourning in the land that we now call the United States of America. And how do I think about when I encounter the immigrant? And like questions around the wall and not wall and all this stuff. But like those are empire questions that are just not unimportant to me, but are just not. Those aren't the primary questions I'm even asking about Im- immigration. I'm getting off on a tangent. This is this is I'm supposed no, to be no. you, but yeah, <laughs> a couple well, a couple of thoughts. You know, the first one would be that yeah, you know, I think that um one of the biggest ways that I'd say maybe the biggest sign that your lean is becoming a bow is your quickness to break fellowship with people who see the world differently, mm, you know? Okay. And so I think this is a major, one of my big hopes in the goal is to help equip us as the church to stay united together in Jesus, even with our different leanings, you know? And so uh, I, I would suggest today, like this is the new church split. Like we're seeing all over the country, churches split the, and reorganize and fracture around the four political religions. And so I'm even seeing many churches almost like marketing campaigns, plant a flag in one of the four quadrants and we're going to be the security church and they're getting tons of growth. We're going to be the identity church and tons of growth. We're going to be the responsibility. We're going to be, you know, and I think that we're facing a danger that the new denominations, so to speak, are not like around doctrinal lines, doctrinal lines, but they're actually around cultural division. And so one of the, I think a crisis that the church is facing today as it relates to political discipleship is that the church is fracturing and reorganizing along political fault lines. Basically, I think one of the biggest signs that your lean is becoming a bow is that you are contributing to and participating in that reality. You know, like you are allowing your political allegiance to, um, fracture and divide the body of Christ for which he died, you know? So that would be one observation, you know, um, a second observation I think would be that, uh, I, I, I really spent a lot of time in the book, especially in the second half, trying to get very practical in what I call, you know, formational practices for a polarized world. When what are practices that we can do as the body of Christ to, um, to keep our ultimate allegiance to Jesus and to stay together even with our different political leanings. And it's not necessarily like I'm trying to create like a ton of new practices. Hey, you got to add all these things to your busy life, but more looking at how a lot of the uh, contemporary, you know, a lot of historic Christian practices that we already do are political in nature. And when we recognize them as such, uh, they, they can help us. So um, to give an example, I have one chapter on, uh, kind of our, you know, scattered practices. So things that we do scattered in our individual lives as the people of God. And one of those is simply like reading scripture and the whole story of God. Um, because each of the political religions has a particular narrative that it's telling, you know, kind of the narrative of we can change and transform the world on our own power apart from God, you know, the, the progress one or the religion of responsibility, like just, you don't need grace. Just take responsibility for yourself and pull yourself up by your bootstraps or their religion of identity. You know, like um, just look within and find your deepest, truest, authentic desires and express those to the world. That's how you're going to find meaning and fulfillment or security. Like we just need to uh, fear others from the outside. If, if we can establish, you know, like there are these distortions that the political religions can fear towards. And we need the narrative of scripture to actually confront mm. 
those narratives with the true story of Christ and his kingdom for our world. And so and I think when we look at reading scripture, not just as a personalized thing I do in my study over here, but actually a way of engaging the story of God in a world with competing stories that are vying for my allegiance, it can help shape us to be a unique and particular type of people in our polarized world. Yeah. Um, another quick one, but just like, sounds simple, but table fellowship, like meals, you know, like having meals with people who lean different directions. And even one of these we sought to do uh, at our church was to have our uh, small groups, people stay equipped to stay united with people in their groups who had different leanings and were from different, different perspectives, because there's a book, the big sort with Bill Bishop, uh, kind of influential book on, uh, on polarization and stuff today. And one of the observations he makes is mixed company moderates and homogeneous comp company pushes you to the extremes. And so if you're only hanging out in the echo chamber, whether online or in your neighborhood or with people who see the world the same way you do, it's going to push you into more the extreme divisive, dangerous thinking. If you are in relationship and proximity and conversation and all with people who lean different ways, um, that's going to moderate your views in ways that I think will be more healthy. And uh, it's not again, it's not saying you got to be centrist, or, but it's saying that you're going to understand maybe the complexity involved at a different level. Or um, so I think valuing community with people who see the world differently from you and um, and how quickly today families, friendships, churches are fracturing along these political fault lines is by its very nature, that reality is pushing us into more extreme positions and views that conflict with our allegiance to Jesus. And so I think simply the reality of being committed to staying at the table together is a commitment to keeping your lean from becoming a bow. And I, yeah, I, yeah that's, that's really helpful. It's it's a lot. <laughs> Imagine that when you come face to face with an actual embodied human being and share a meal and talk about all the commonalities you have, whether it's your favorite sports team or favorite kind of food, or uh, you both like to travel or something like we, we have so much more shared humanity than opposing humanity. That doesn't, it's kind of a weird way to word it, but you know what I mean? Like, um, but I, I, yeah, I do wonder too, and I know social media always can, is a boogeyman or whatever, but I th at the end of the day, I think it actually is pretty true. Like people that spend a good bulk of their, of their social environment simply on typically, typically Twitter. Um, I don't, I don't know, TikTok, maybe, maybe that's similar. I don't know. Or, or even like YouTube's a different animal, but that, that too, like if that's how you view the world, like, man, you just get so incredibly polarized. Like, it, yeah, every yeah, now that I'll well, glance at like Twitter and people that are just it's the same people always on there all and it's like they're just so angry and it's like so dry so us versus them and stuff and it's like yeah I don't know it's yeah that's got to be a no, big that is a big part right that's, that's been proven oh, totally. that, that that's yeah you know as I mentioned on the you know going to a bunch of practices but one of them also talk about fasting and even you know a digital fast and you know we, basically one of the things we did in 2020 was. Um, the 40 days leading into the election, we asked our people to fast from social media. And really? the idea was, uh, the idea was 
everybody's mind's already made up by this point. You know, that's when I think, and sadly, I think that's when a lot of churches or leaders are thinking, okay, it's September. Let's start talking about politics. I'm going, dude, I think you need to go way back on the front end. We should be talking about this stuff now to help prepare oh, people yeah. for what's coming. And so, uh, you know, so we spent more of the earlier part of the year preparing and equipping and all that. And then when it came to the 40 days prior, we're like, hey, everybody's minds pretty much already made up. People know who they're voting for. People know where, where they're going. Uh, but we want to call to a digital fast. Um, and one of the pushbacks that, you know, a, a couple of people gave was like, well, it feels like we're, we're disengaging from the real world, you know? And, and uh, my pushback <laughs> was like, dude, social media is not the real world. You know, like, like dude, social media, right, it's yeah. algorithms and people spending loads of billions of dollars trying to get your attention, capture your attention and push you into partnership. Like, uh, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm on social media. I enjoy being on it. But, uh, but I think having a health of you, like the goal here is to actually engage with the real world, to get off of right. this manufactured world that's fine for your allegiance and to connect with real people, with real flesh and bone and and to dig in and get to know their stories and to hear, you know, a lot of tips in the book on how to have good, healthy conversations around politics and, and these things. But going like that, those practices of fasting from digital stuff today, like can actually help us reconnect with the real world and be healthier and more realistic in our political engagement. Along those lines, we've, we've talked offline quite a bit about different political approaches, kind of the Donovan versus Harawas approaches. So I, I'm, I'm constantly trying to find the balance or, or navigate the tension of not letting national politics suck my heart into its vortex to turn my lean into my bow. So I, I, I'm resisting that. And sometimes if I resist that too far, I can become very, in, f- almost force myself to become indi- indifferent towards national politics. The pushback, of course, is, well, that's nice for you because you live this privileged life out in Boise, Idaho, and you're not affected by, you know, who's running the White House or whatever, but there's a lot of people that are. And so... um because I, I I absolutely do not believe in a separatist position. I argue that very clearly in the book. That I'm not arguing for separating yourself from society, just engaging society in a in a different manner than is than is typically proposed. Um, how do you na- how do you personally navigate that? Like when it comes to the when it comes to November, do you just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, ah, whoever gets elected, fine? Or are you like, ah, I really think this hope this person does, but if not, I'm not going to lose my mind, I'm not going to lose my mind. But oh, this is not going to be good, and I'm going to try to like vote in the other direction so that this other person doesn't get elected because I think that is actually going to be harmful for society. Where do you, how do you navigate that tension versus like Great. indifference yeah. or over different, <laughs> overly invested to where it's like you're, yeah, you understand what I'm saying. Totally. No, that's great. Yeah. One of the ways I love to navigate this is trying to expand our frame for what we mean by political involvement. You know, so I have one chapter called creative options for political involvement. Cause I feel like a lot of us feel like we only have three options, which is kind of what you mentioned. Yeah. We've either got like the donkey option or the elephant option, you know, Democrat Republican or the ostrich option, which is bury your head in the <laughs> sand and wait till it all blows yeah. over, you know? Uh, but actually when I think we actually have uh, both in scripture and in church tradition, many more options. So I lay out six other options and to just kind of summarize them uh, like the local option uh, which is really going, you talked about national like politics, that. but I think there's actually so much that we can do locally in our community. Uh, we started these things called prayer and action groups in 2020 
just going, man, often these get pitted against each other. You've got the crowd that's like, we're just going to pray about it, but not do anything. And the crowd that we're going to be all about action, but they get burnt out and, you know, like on their own steam and going, man, we want to invite people to commit. So we started uh, the first two. One was on sanctity of life and one was on criminal justice, uh, which uh, an issue that, you know, people who lean right and left each to the care um, about strongly. And basically, we want to invite you if you care about politics, like uh, to invest a year in one of these groups with a dozen other people that you would uh, read some of the best resources on the subject that you would meet with local leaders in our city who are working on this issue and that you would find and commit to something practical uh, that, that we could do as a church to make a difference in this area here in our community and that you would pray throughout this whole process intentionally and all. And it was going to, we're going to get invested locally. And the impact was dramatic, like actually the tangible stuff that we saw. And I feel like so often the long game of, it's like Jesus' parable of the yeast and the dough, you know, the stuff that makes the biggest impact long-term is not always the outside in, it's the little seeds that you begin planting and nurturing. And so, and so I, I think if Christians around the country, if we were invested locally in our communities with that kind of impact, um, it could have a huge deal and still vote nationally, but work locally. Like I'm going to vote, I'm going to put my national vote in, but one option that gives me a lot of hope is getting my hands in the trenches, you know, in, in, into the soil of my local community and working for the kind of change I want to see nationally in, in our city. Uh, second option talk about is the Daniel option, which is going, do there are some people like Daniel in the Old Testament who uh, are, I believe, called to political office, who have maybe a vocation to be in that environment. We've had a number of people in politics in the last uh, two churches where I've pastored and recognize, man, there's some complexities that come when you're like Daniel's working in Babylon. And I love the story where at the beginning, he, um, they want in Babylon, they want to you know, change his name to the name of a pagan God and to give him this diet of the, the stuff, you know, and he, he refuses the meat from the King's table, but he lets yeah. them name him the name of a pagan God. And I'm going like, what the heck, Daniel? Like, dude, take the steak, but don't let them name you after, you know, like <laughs> some foreign God or whatever. And scholars are torn on like, why, why that decision? Uh, but it's praised and commended in scripture. And I think there's a sense of going like, Often, like Daniel, there can be uh, situations where politics is the art of compromise. And for politicians being in that place as a follower of Jesus, whether the local politics or national, there may be you know, places where you make decisions that might be hard to understand from the outside looking in. And I think we need a lot of space and grace. That's not to say that you should compromise in your character, ethics, or you know, convictions, but, but that you can work for the common good in ways that, uh, like Daniel, are going to be complex and difficult, you know, and, uh, and there I'm drawing, you know, on the local option, I'm drawing on the subsidiarity uh, tradition in Christian theology that places a high emphasis on the local uh, with the Daniel option, trying on kind of the Kyperian uh, tradition of sphere sovereignty of, of, I don't know, I go more into that in the book. Uh, I'm going too long here. So just to sum up the others, you know, they've got the, uh, uh, the prophetic option, which is more like the MLK prophetic imagination, working from outside the system rather than within, uh, but expanding the imagination for what's possible through creative and prophetic action. Uh, then fourth, there's the scuba option, which is kind of like the William Wilberforce, like diving really deep on one particular issue for a long time. Mm. I think friends of mine who've done tremendous work in areas like foster care, vulnerable children in our city, and 
they're not directly involved in politics, but they're the people that the politicians come to when they're working on policy and changes because they have the expertise in the field to actually know how to make a difference. Um, and then option five is the local, or I'm sorry, is the uh, monastic option, which I think drawing more on the Anabaptist tradition, where I think some of your, your leanings might be, you know, which is going like, dude, I think the monks often get a bad rap as like being escapist or isolationist, but dude, the monks transformed the world. Like they actually mm. revolutionized agriculture and education and learning and all these things um, mm. by forming an alternative community in the midst of the empire that actually, um, again, like that yeast in the dough had dramatic long-term impact. And so I think there may be some people, uh, like you mentioned, you know, and I, I know some people who are kind of going like, Dude, I just don't feel like I can engage in that political sphere without just feeling compromised or corrupt or I don't know, you know, and going like even still there, I'd say, well, then pour your energy into your local community. I did like a local church community or a place where you get to embody the alternative that you want to see in the world. And, um, and that can have dramatic impact. And the final option is the reform option, which is uh, looking at some ways to reform the system when it comes to how our political system is broken and ways that people can work across party lines to actually transform the political system. Yeah. So are you, are you laying those out as equally valid uh, options or would you say that depending on your situation, I mean, we're living in the United States, so we have a distinct political situation. Somebody else might be living in China, South Sudan or something, and, and they might have a different system. Are you saying that one or two or possibly three of those different approaches might be more faithful than others, depending on your context, or are they all kind of equally valid, if that makes sense? I'm kind of thinking of this question on the fly a little bit, just trying to think through. Yeah. You know, I believe they can all be equally valid at the same time. So I, you know, first off, I don't think these are like the exhaustive, the only options yeah. for all time, you know, even, and I think for many, their circumstances might push them into a particular option, you know? So I think of, um, when I was working with the persecuted church in Vietnam and kind of underground churches, uh, they're going to have to, uh, they veered very much into the local option, you know, of like, um, well, even the, uh, I'm sorry, more of the monastic option of going, we don't really have the option of political involvement in any way because we're not being allowed to. And so we're going to try and be an alternative community that's salt and light and everything in, in our context. So, I do think, though, that all of those six options have deep roots in Christian tradition. Again, themes like subsidiarity with the local option, which is, uh, uh, or Kyperian. So subsidiarity, especially is emphasized in like the Catholic tradition. Um, the Kyperian is especially emphasized in the Reformed tradition, with like the Daniel option and things there. Uh, think of MLK and the black church, particularly with the prophetic imagination option. I uh, think of um, the deep history of the monastic movement, you know, and, and some of the Anabaptist themes with the monastic option. Uh, I think of powerful leaders throughout history uh, like Wilberforce or like John Chrysostom in the early church when it comes mm. to uh, the scuba option. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'd say all of these, I, I think are, deeply legitimate, valuable options and different individuals, depending on their opportunity, place in life, um, are going to maybe be best suited to engage in different, different ways. Yeah, I, I do. Re I mean, I, you said I resonate with the monastic, I would say a, a blend of the, mon I, I, I see as perfectly compatible, the, mon the monastic category and the MLK category. That's kind of what I, in my book, yes. I talk about, um, 
prophetic witness where our, mm-hmm. you know, the classic, you know, speaking truth to power, um, and even before that, embodying the truth that we hope to see in the world so that we are, and this is very Hauerwasian, obviously, you know, the, you know, the best way the church can shape the world is by being the church, being the alternative polis, the alternative center. Yeah. Yeah. So that rather than putting all your energy in, you know, ethnic reconciliation in society, which is a good thing, let's make sure we're embodying that as a community so that we, you know, that sort of embodiment of this multi-ethnic community is spilling over outside of our walls and we can even show the world, this is what it looks like, you know, not, not just as a signpost, but an, as a tangible means of, a, of actually addressing uh, the world. And this is where I, I do think Howard Watts gets a bad rap of being more isolation. I don't, I don't think he's isolationist. I think he's changing the kind of way in which we engage the world. Um, the Daniel option you described, I mean, I talk about Daniel very briefly in my book and, and, um, I'm not completely opposed to it. I, I do, I do struggle with the category of compromise. And I should clarify there. I don't mean like compromise ethically. I mean, hey, we want this, okay. you want this. Let's work together and okay, well, we'll give up this in order to, yeah, if, if that makes sense. I got some examples, but I'd probably take us. yeah. Um, if I did not compromise in my marriage, I would be in big. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So not, so not morally, because part of me is like, at least on a national level, like can you actually be involved in in the system of the empire and not sacrifice some fundamental Christian values. Like just this morning I was rereading, you know, Matthew 20 where, you know, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, but for you, it shall not be. So the first will be last. The, what is it? The, if you want to be great, be the slave of all, like, can you even make it to any kind of political office by washing the feet of your opponent, by not spending exuberant amount of money, um, to get office, to, to even get recognized. I, I think it it's morally questionable to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to get into a position of power in the empire. If I could even word it like that, like, I don't know, like I, I've got verses that would challenge that whole, the whole, the whole system has a view of power that is just, I think, fundamentally at odds with the kingdom of, of God. Um, so could you, and, and you know, Daniel, he was, you know, he was, taken into exile against his will while his friends and family and neighbors were being slaughtered to death and raped by the empire that he was serving. So, I mean, it's a, it's not like he like ran for office or something and was like patriotic towards Babylon or something. But, um, I don't know. I, I honestly, this is where I don't want to get beyond my skis. I when once we start getting into like, I feel fairly confident about kind of cultivating a, a theologically robust political identity. How does that work out in the different situations we find ourselves in today in the global church? That that's where I'm like, I don't know. Let's have that conversation. I I, I don't know how all this works out. Yeah. I, I do want to see maybe more of a suspicion of the empire and imperial ways. I want to see more suspicion about that, that, that system uh, and how that is, that is at odds with the kingdom of God. I guess maybe that's a good starting point. And, and then let's talk about, you know, how can we be involved and not be involved and what kind of involvement would be, you know, maybe unfaithful or other types of involvement would be faithful, but uh, yeah, I don't well, know. What do you, two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two thoughts on that. You know, one is, um, uh, you know, again, I think we immediately kind of jump to the national and like, could you be president yeah. and what it takes to get there? And, you know, that, that's an important <laughs> question. But uh, but I, I, I think it's helpful to even go, OK, in my city, what are some of the different political offices and positions there? And there have been people in our church yeah, that have had true. three 
people who've been in office, you know, in church and kind of going, how do I disciple them, you know, and, and uh, as their pastor, how do I shepherd them with some of the complexity of their, their position, you know, and the things that they're wrestling through and navigating. Um, but a second observation too, is I, I've often wondered what if, what if the mayor in our city came to Jesus, you know, like if he actually yeah. encountered Christ and, and then, and he came to me as a pastor or whatever and was going, Hey, how do I do this? How do I follow Jesus? Do I need to leave office? Do I stand out? You know, or, and what's interesting is you actually see this in the early church, you know, as you actually see yeah. uh, civic officials coming to Christ. And I think this is some of what Donovan's claim is like, dude, the, it wasn't, we often think like the conversion of the empire, um, you know, is like this top down thing. And he thought really it was more of this grassroots, like the, the, the kingdom spread over the first few centuries. And, um, if you're at Rodney Stark, kind of the grassroots momentum and movement of yeah. the church, and then the officials start taking notice and there could be kind of the cynical, some of them, it's a power play. Well, Hey, this thing's got momentum. Let's hop on the train. And there could be some of them, it seemed like an authentic deal, but either way they're coming to church mm-hmm. leaders like Augustine or Ambrose or others and going, okay, I want to follow Jesus. How do I do this? And I think the question of does the church have a constructive political vision and those kind of things for a political vision ordered by love, you know, like the love of God for his world, his desire for the flourishing of the world with justice, with peace, with, with those kind of things. Is there a role uh, that those positions have? And my own bent, I know this is getting us into a whole, a whole bigger conversation, but my own bent is like, I think there's a lot of wisdom. There's definitely a lot of mistakes the church has made over the centuries, but I think there's also a lot of wisdom in the Christian political tradition for having processed through and worked through a lot of those questions in some ways that are uh, pretty profound. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful, man. By, by the way, I'm, I'm, I am into my way through O'Donovan. Um, it's, uh, it's not, it's not as hard as I, th- okay. So so hard I, to read. Yeah. He's, well, I couldn't even understand. I, so the first chapter, yeah. When he was more thinking like talking like a theologian, but when he gets into the, when he does the Carl Bart, like these kind of dives into the text and he's, he's actually does a lot more biblical scholarship stuff than I'm like, no, this is okay. I, I don't always see, you know, I'm on, I, I know he's trying to put together the pieces of this larger puzzle. So I'm thinking, I agree with this piece you're crafting with like kingship in the Old Testament and judge and and prophetic. You know, he's he digs, he's an exquisite biblical scholar in, in many ways, even though he's a theologian. Um, but I'm kind of like, well, what, what's the puzzle you're trying to build here? Though, before I kind of jump on board, but all that to say, I'm actually enjoy. It's not, it's it's let it's it's more readable than I made it out to be when we first started talking where I was like, this guy's might as well be speaking German. I don't understand a word he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a desire of the nations, right? Is that the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm totally. like, a th- I'm like a third of the way in. So I'm excited to see how the, if I can understand how he puts it together. Cause I know for those listening, I mean, I've mentioned O'Donovan and Harawas a lot and that's kind of the, the camps that I'm, that I'm wrestling with. And I know a lot of people that were, they went through this, they always call it their Harawasian phase. And then they came out on the other side little more level-headed with a Donovan is, is, is how a lot of people kind of, you know, the Caitlin Chess and others who they talk about their Hauerwas phase. And I'm like, am I still in that phase or is that actually the, the end point? It's a good I phase. It's an important, <laughs> but I don't think you can be in, you know, in the political theology sphere and go around it. You got to go at least through it, you know, which is a good thing. But yeah, you know, it's funny. I took a group of, uh, you know, there are about 10 friends back here in Portland here back in the day that were going, Hey, we want to kind of go deep, Theology, all of them were kind of interested in the political conversation and whatnot. And so uh, I went through like six different books that year every two months. But one of them was O'Donovan's Desire of the Nations. And oh, my gosh, oh, man, it was man. Uh, 
Yeah, like that, that that was a fun conversation, but man, it was uh if you're not used to reading that kind of yeah stuff, it's thick. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, let's uh the few minutes we have, let's talk about yeah. political discipleship. It is uh we're coming up on March um at the time of the release of this podcast. And uh already things are tense. Um uh yeah what what speak to christian leaders listening and who are maybe aware of some of the oh here we go again you know let's how, how are we going to keep the church together um during this election season what what are your what kind of advice would you give to a christian leader definitely a few thoughts one would be i'd suggest starting sooner rather than later you know i do think there can be this sense of like hey we'll do something because often august i mean in the summer i know things can often slow down for churches and so um, then you hit, you know, okay, we'll kind of slow down in the summer and then we'll hit September and it'll be about time. Mm, but at that point, right. it feels like everything's the the formative work of our culture against healthy discipleship has already taken place. And so um, my advice, would, even if it's not like a full throttle, maybe there's more that you do later, but uh, I think the sooner the better, you know, like um, yeah. to even be looking at in the spring, like what are ways we can start preparing our people uh, during the winter and spring for what's coming in the fall. Uh, one resource that I just want to throw out there is um, by the time this podcast releases, it should be up on my website, but uh, I do have what we call a Christian political commitment. Um, we kind of jokingly mm. referred to them as 10 political commandments back at our, uh, our church, uh, 10 commandments, you know, joking because we don't want to confuse them with the actual 10 commandments, but going, these are things that are commanded by God in scripture. And so this Christian political commitment we used with our, our people, and I think gave a helpful there's expectations. Here's how we're going to engage the political season. And so things like the first commitment is worship. I commit my allegiance to King Jesus over all idols and ideologies. Uh, the second one, love of neighbor. I commit to participating in civic life as a means of loving my neighbor rather than just serving my own interest. And then there's eight more on like the image of God, biblical wisdom, biblical justice, fruitful speech, peacemaking, removing the log, humble learning, loving enemies. Uh, but we found this helpful just to give a concrete kind of sense of expectations for wherever your political leaning might be. As we go into the season, here are 10 things we want to ask you to commit to as the people of God, you know, as, as, mm-hmm. as a church that we want to commit to as a church in terms of how we approach our political posture in the season. And we're not going to be perfect. We're sinners. We'll make mistakes, but at least we're finding clarity on, we believe this is what a healthy political discipleship looks like that can keep us together, even in the midst of our different leanings and, uh, and all. There's a great book that I read and endorsed by uh, Sean McDowell and Tim Muehlhoff. It's called uh, End the Stalemate move past mm. cancer culture to meaningful conversations. It's a, br- mm. you, you, you know, Jonathan Haidt and his whole, you know, yes. yeah. Yeah. So it, it's like a, it takes a lot of those principles about when we're, how to have meaningful conversations when we're just at odds with these different viewpoints. It, it is really good practical book. I wish it was coming out sooner. It's coming out in June, but um, cause I, yeah, I, I do think understanding this, the deep psychological neighbor of why people even hold so strongly to these commitments, even understanding that helps you go about addressing it in a more healthy, healthy way, you know? Um, cause that, gosh, yeah, I, I don't, my heart goes out to pastors that are in a kind of a mixed congregation that you got people on different sides. It could be an incredibly beautiful thing if it's a lean and not a bow, but <laughs> once again, when it's, when you got people bowing in different directions and it's not toward King Jesus, Oh man, 
I pity the fool. I pity the fool. Um, well, Mr. Yes. T action. Um, that's really helpful, Josh. Um, so your book, The Party Crasher, what's the subtitle again? I forget the subtitle. Yeah, How Jesus Disrupts Politics as Usual and Redeems Our Partisan Divide. Did you think of that title, The Party Crasher? Is that? <laughs> oh, actually, dude, props to my friend Jesse Lusco. So I was on a phone call oh. with him back in the day. He's a good buddy, a pastor here in Portland. He's so good with creating every preacher needs like dude, he, we will call each other up to brainstorm ideas when we're working on yeah. sermons and that kind of thing you know and he's the best and so i was struggling with the title it's like jesse i need help with the title i had two or three but just was not stoked yeah. on them you know and, and uh so we spent one night brainstorming and he was like oh there's this sermon series i wanted to do back in the day for the last election called the party crasher on politics and all and he was kind enough to let me uh use it for for this book and he also had the idea for the cover, oh man, I oh, where's my book? Anyways, the, the the cover, if you see it, it's got these pinatas, like a pinata of a donkey. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. It. And uh, that that was his idea as well. So props to Jesse Lusco for the party crasher title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the cover's awesome too. Yeah, <laughs> it is pinatas. I didn't catch that the first time. I just saw the elephant. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a uh, yeah. I uh, from from both what I've read, it's an outstanding book. And Josh, what I love about your writing is. Uh, as you can sense from even our conversation, you're very well read. You typically read in the academic realm, but man, your prose is so readable. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> like, I just love how accessible. I mean, it's just so practical. And if you didn't know any better, you would think that you're just kind of like, you know, yeah. You, if you go look at the footnotes, you're like, oh, this guy's like read all this stuff. He's actually thought through this on a real academic level, but it doesn't it doesn't say there. So encourage everybody to get the book. And uh, thanks so much for being on Theology Around, man. Thanks, Preston. Great for you, man. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network. 